Warning, this podcast is a Korea Black production. This is a podcast for adults only. It is not a podcast for people who think podcast hosts should be emotional friends, spiritual advisors, surrogate parents, or role models for their children, grandchildren, or potential offspring. This podcast may contain all sorts of trigger warning type content such as graphic language, harsh judgments, and microaggressive behavior. If you are a sensitive person or reality challenged, or you only listen to podcasts that agree with your religious views, personal philosophy, ideology, or feelings about life in general, please do not listen to this podcast. All comments, compliments, and complaints should be sent to koreablack at koreablackproductions.com. Thank you. The man in black fled across the desert, and the gunslinger followed. The desert was the apotheosis of all deserts, huge, standing to the sky for what looked like eternity in all directions. It was white and blinding and waterless, and without feature save for the faint, cloudy haze of the mountains which sketched themselves on the horizon, and the devil grass which brought sweet dreams, nightmares, and death. This is the first passage from the Dark Tower series Book One, The Gunslinger, written by Stephen King. The first time I read this book and reflected back on this excerpt, it felt like the setting of a story placed in a metaphorical hell on earth. And the gunslinger, whose name is Roland Deschain, was chasing the devil into his wicked kingdom. Roland's journey is ultimately a test of wills and the measure of a man. A man who will stop at nothing to get what he desires or die trying to achieve it. The story begins in the aftermath of a world that has moved on. It was once a place of splendor and wonder that is now desolate and dying. Roland is one of the results of this rotting world, but even as it decays, he still pursues the Man in Black and the Dark Tower itself. The Man in Black is responsible for a good part of the evil that has befallen this world in recent times, and he also holds the answers to the questions Roland seeks. At this point in the story, Roland is following his trail and trying to survive traveling through the oppressive desert heat. As he walks... His mind constantly drifts from the present to the past. Sometimes thinking of the past brings him comfort of better days, but other times it brings him waves of never-ending torment. One step forward, two steps back. That's how his memories make him feel. A continuous cycle of joy and pain, which is why he's always looking for something to break up the monotony of thoughts of a time gone by. This brings us to a man named Brown. Brown is a corn farmer, and he lives in the desert with his pet raven Zoltan. When Roland first meets him, He's cautious because he doesn't know if Brown is truly what he appears to be. But as they spend more time together, Roland relaxes his guard and asks Brown questions about the man in black. As the day progresses, they eat dinner, and Roland asks Brown if he believes in an afterlife. Brown responds by saying, I think this is it. This line struck me as important because it can have a dual meaning to it. Brown could be saying, I think this is it, meaning once you're dead, there's nothing after this world. Or he could be saying, I think this is it, meaning this is the afterlife we're currently living in now. I've always interpreted what Brown said as, 
this world is the afterlife. And I think Roland interprets it as the former. If the latter is true, then it reinforces the notion I alluded to earlier that if this plane of existence is the afterlife, then the afterlife must be hell, or at least an alternate version of hell, which is probably close to a type of purgatory. The people of this world are no longer living, but simply waiting to die. And whatever heights their civilization once achieved are now long forgotten. And what remains is falling into oblivion. Eventually, their conversation leads Roland to speaking about the town of Tull, a decrepit, dirty, broken-down town that looked like something out of the American Old West. But it was also very symbolic of how the world looked at large. Some towns were powered by electricity or batteries, but others, like Tull, seemed to run on kerosene oil and wood-burning stoves for light and power. When Roland enters the town, he immediately notices everyone is staring at him. He can feel the overwhelming sense of distrust and contempt for him being a stranger which is magnified even further when he enters a saloon to get something to eat. Inside the saloon, there were about 15 people spread throughout the room. They all stopped what they were doing so they could get a good look at him, while at the same time making sure they kept their distance from him. Again, he could feel the tension in the air, just like he did when he entered the town. But this time, it was accompanied by the overwhelming smell of sour beer and dried urine. But Roland didn't care about the people or the smell, because he was there for the food and drink. This is where Roland meets a bartender named Allie, he asks her if they have meat, and she says they do. She says it's clean beef threaded stock. That supposedly means it's quality meat. But Roland doesn't believe this because a lot of the animals in this world were exposed to some form of radiation poisoning years ago. And because of that, they bore mutated offspring. But whether the meat was mutated or not, when a man's hungry, he's got to eat something. So Roland orders three hamburgers and a beer. There's something else we learn from this scene. Roland pays in gold, and apparently gold is a rare thing in this part of the world. When the saloon patrons see the gold, they're absolutely amazed. I assume the normal currency would be cash or trade, but the odd thing about what's unfolding here has to do with one of the patrons named Nort. Nort is what people call a weed eater. That's someone who smokes a naturally growing weed called devil grass in order to get high. But apparently smoking it wasn't good enough for Nort, because at some point in his life, his method of consumption was to chew large amounts of the devil grass as opposed to smoking it. But consuming too much of any drug can kill you, and that's exactly what it did to Nort. Nort died from a drug overdose. But he was later brought back to life by the man in black. So ever since then, his teeth turned green and his body continuously rots, which causes him to smell like death a hundred times over. He's basically a zombie, but in his case, he's sort of half dead, half alive, but still addicted to the devil grass. He still has his memories, but he's kind of zoned out and keeps to himself. But once he sees Roland's gold, he becomes fixated on it and wants Roland to give him a coin. Roland does, and Nort goes off into a corner and stares at it in awe. The funny thing about Nort is, even though he died and came back to life, everyone still treats him as if he's doing just fine. The whole situation seems very odd. But since I'm a firm believer that people should mind their own goddamn business, I understand why people have no comment on the matter. This is just a side note. Some very close friends of mine love their own version of the devil grass. I always wonder if they'll end up like old Nort boy, but I digress. We also find out that Allie is attracted to Roland. She offers Roland information about the man in black in exchange for sex. Roland agrees to this, and an exchange of goods and services takes place in a room above the bar. Once they've spent some quality time together, Allie tells Roland what happened when the man in black came to Tull. She tells Roland about the note the man in black left her. The note said the man in black cast some sort of sorcery on Nort, and that if Allie said the word 19 to him, his mind would open up and Nort would tell her about the realm of the dead and what lies beyond. This scene is giving us a small sample of what the man in black is capable of. And once Allie read the note, it laid the groundwork for her days on this earth coming to an end. It was like a ticking time bomb inside of her head. Sooner or later, she would say the word 19 to Nort, and sooner or later, the bomb would explode. And when it does, 
she will know firsthand about the secrets of death and beyond. But whether Allie lives or dies is ultimately not important. She is just one more piece of a puzzle that will spring a trap for Roland. And no matter what happens in this town, the target always was and always will be Roland. Everybody else is just a means to an end. For the next couple days, Roland and Allie continue their vigorous exchange of bodily fluids, while at the same time angering one of the saloon employees, the piano player named Sheb. Sheb was romantically involved with Allie until Big Dick Roland arrived, and now he's very upset that Allie has dumped him. So one day, Sheb decides to man up and go after Roland with a knife. Roland shows Sheb the error of his ways and breaks both of Sheb's wrists, and then Roland remembers he's seen Sheb before. They first met in a land called Magus. It was the first mission Roland's father sent him on as a gunslinger, and it was also the first time Roland would fall in love. But as fate would have it, this would also be his last time as well. Her name was Susan, and she was branded as a traitor by the governing powers of Magus, and because of her betrayal, she was executed for it. Once Roland mentions Magus, Sheb remembers Roland, but Sheb remembers Roland as a boy, not as a weathered and hardened gunslinger. Roland tells Sheb to leave his sight while he still can, and Sheb runs away. But unfortunately for Roland, bitter memories have returned and begin rolling throughout his mind. Allie tries to comfort him, but Roland prefers to be left alone so he can wallow in his sorrow. This will be a reoccurring event with Roland. The memories of the past are so hurtful that sometimes he just needs to shut himself off from the rest of the world. And it's during times like these that he's no longer a dangerous killer of men, but instead a sad and broken man. As the story progresses, we meet the town preacher Sylvia Pitson. It's Sunday, and she's given a sermon about the Antichrist, who she refers to as the interloper. She rambles on about the interloper putting evil and temptation in the hearts of men, and how the interloper will cause the downfall of creation. Roland realizes she's making allusions towards him, and he leaves the church. The next day, he decides it's time for him to leave Tull, but before he goes, he wants a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the preacher lady. Sylvia Pitson lives in a small shack behind the church. When Roland gets to her home, he knocks on the door, but she refuses to answer him. So Roland decides to invite himself in and kicks the door down. We learn the name of a new character in the world of the Dark Tower. This is the first time we hear about the Crimson King. I'm actually kind of glad we only get a little breadcrumb of information about him, because to me, a writer being vague about characters or plot points is actually more enticing than a complete total reveal. It makes me want to know more about this world and forces me to use my imagination as to what the backstory could be. The story progresses, and Roland is packing up and getting ready to leave Tull. But like clockwork, this is also when the Man in Black's trap is sprung. The entire town of Tull comes at him in waves. They're carrying whatever they can find as a weapon, and Roland begins shooting them down. He even sees Allie, who is being used as a human shield by Sheb. Allie begs Roland to kill her because she said the word 19 to Nort, and what she has learned is driving her insane. Roland gives her what she wants, and he kills her and Sheb. As he continues his killing spree, he tries ducking in and out of buildings, and no matter where he goes, they follow him like a shadow. He can hear in the distance Sylvia Pitson urging them on. But Roland keeps shooting and they keep dying. Then Sylvia herself charges at him with a wooden cross in each hand. Roland shoots the crosses into splinters and then puts four bullets into the woman's head. This was the only time the townspeople stopped their assault. They paused to look at the dead woman's body. And while they stared in awe, Roland reloaded his guns. And then what was left of the mob continued their attack. Roland was cutting them down as fast as they came. Even a small boy attacked him managed to get a deep cut on the bulge of Roland's calf, but Roland answers this by blowing the child's goddamn head off. What was left of Tull's army began to scatter. They were defeated, and they knew it, so they ran like cowards do. But Roland didn't care. He continued to kill everyone in sight, and when the battle was over, the death count was 39 men, 14 women, and 5 children. Side note, for those of you 
who are offended that a fictional child got his head blown clean the fuck off, I answer you with this. In Roland's world, discrimination is not tolerated. Therefore, every man, woman, and child has the equal and fundamental right to get his or her head shot the fuck off his or her shoulders. So that being said, if a man is holding a gun and you attack him with chunks of wood and butcher knives, well, there's a very old saying that I think is written on the back of the Ten Commandments somewhere. Never bring a knife to a gunfight because you might get shot in the face. Those are words to live by. Just saying. When Roland finishes telling Brown his story, Brown asks him if he feels better. Roland responds by saying, why would I feel bad? So for Roland, killing people is as natural as taking his next breath. It's something he does because it's necessary to do, and he doesn't feel any emotional backlash from things that need to be done. I think this is a necessary mindset that a gunslinger must have in order to be successful at his job. And by successful, I mean staying alive. Otherwise, if you're not detached from your emotions, the amount of guilt you might feel could be so overwhelming that one day you might decide to put a bullet in your own head. But regardless of his emotional detachment, it seems to only apply to people he is not familiar with. Because after he parts ways with Brown, his childhood memories return. He thinks of Susan, and this time, another important figure from his past, a man named Court. Court taught him how to be a gunslinger, but he also remembers that Court is dead. They're all dead. Everyone he's ever cared about or loved is dead and gone. The world had moved on, and he moved along with it. Eventually, Roland comes upon a way station. This is where he meets a small 11-year-old boy named Jake Chambers. Roland sees the boy and then suddenly collapses from a lack of food and water. Jake nurses Roland back to health, but like Brown before him, Roland is suspicious. But since the boy did save his life, Roland relaxes a bit and starts asking him questions about the man in black. Jake saw the man in black, but they never made contact with each other. After further questioning, Roland decides to hypnotize Jake because Jake can't remember his past. He does remember some things, like movies, television shows, and Mrs. Shaw, and Roland asks him, who is Mrs. Shaw? But Jake can't remember that either. All he can recall is her name and what she looked like. Under hypnosis, Jake begins to remember his true origin. He is not of Roland's world, but from New York. His father worked in the television industry, smoked four packs of cigarettes a day, and has a slight cocaine habit. His mother was a scrawny woman who also had a very bad habit of her own. From time to time, she would cheat on Jake's father, but she wasn't all bad. She would sometimes sing lullabies to Jake. However, Jake hated lullabies because they had the tendency to scare him, and the woman named Mrs. Shaw was the family maid and the only person Jake considered a friend. Jake also remembers seeing the man in black. He was the last person he saw from his world and the first person he saw in Roland's world. Roland finds Jake's memories hard to believe, and he begins to think that Jake is part of another trap left behind by the man in black. But it doesn't really matter to Roland, because despite his suspicions, he likes Jake. And after thinking more about his story, Roland thought it was odd that Jake was bothered by lullabies. When Roland was young, his mother would sing him nursery rhymes, and they would bring him comfort. And it's at this point that Roland remembers one of his mother's nursery rhymes, but instead of remembering her face, he remembers Court's. Court, an ageless engine of a man, his face stitched with the scars of bricks and bullets, and blunt instruments, the scars of war, and in the instruction in the arts of war. He wondered if Court had ever had a love to match those monumental scars. He doubted it. He thought of Susan and his mother and of Martin, that incomplete enchanter. The gunslinger was not a man to dwell in the past, only a shadowy conception of the future and of his own emotional makeup saved him from being a man without imagination, a dangerous dullard. 
His present run of thought therefore rather amazed him. Each name called up others. Cuthbert, Alain, the old man Jonas in his quavery voice, and again Susan, the lovely girl at the window. Such thoughts always came back to Susan and the great rolling plain known as the Drop, and fishermen casting their nets in the bays on the edge of the clean sea. It was thoughts like these and the calm moments of life that would help Roland fall asleep. The next morning, Roland explored the waste station and he found the cellar. It smelled of cabbages, turnips, and rotten potatoes. The cellar also contained large, mottled gray, mutated spiders. The spiders are another example of a radiological event that had taken place at some point in the past. Whatever this event was, not only affected the animals and insects of this world, but later we'll find out some of the human population as well. Roland gathers cans of food and suddenly discovers there's something else down in the cellar with him. You can hear something trying to dig its way into the cellar. It made a small hole in the wall and then stops. Then heavy labored breathing begins. Roland believes it to be a demon and asks for it to speak. But once it does, the voice he hears is that of Allie. He was shocked by this because he had shot her to death back in Tull. But there was no mistaking that that was her voice and she had brought him a warning. She told him to go slow past the drawers and watch for the tahine. Then she said that, while Roland travels with the boy, the man in black travels with Roland's soul in his pocket. Roland didn't understand any of this and tried to get more information, but it was too late. Allie was gone. This part shows us another glimpse into the supernatural nature of this world. Supernatural events are few and far between in this book, but I like it that way. I like the contrast between the slow burn of an American Old West type tale juxtaposed with an even older Stygian-type magic. I love the way the story builds and has very unique twists and turns to it. After the meeting with the thing in the cellar, Roland and Jake gather their belongings and head for the mountains. As the story moves forward, they take a break to rest. Jake is sleeping, and Roland is once again thinking about the past. We go back to Roland's youth, which is a hybrid world of a medieval-style Europe and the American Old West. So imagine European castles, but replace all the knights with gunslingers, and that's what Roland's world would have looked like. Roland once again thinks of his teacher, Court, and his childhood friend, Cuthbert, as well as a hawk named David. They were training David to hunt and kill doves. On this particular day, Cuthbert had made a mistake in working with the bird, and Court viciously hit the boy. Court was a taskmaster and was always extremely violent with his students. He was hard on the students because he knew the world would be even harder on them when they were men. This is how gunslingers were made, and they would go out into the world and become the law and order of the land. So because of this, they had to be able to take a beating as well as give one. Court also decided that Cuthbert needed an extra helping of discipline, so he told the boy not to eat or drink for one day. The thinking behind this is, even though punishment weakens the body, it also strengthens a man's resolve. And what a man is made of is always more important than what a man can do. However, Cuthbert and Roland disobeyed Court's orders and went to visit their friend Hacks the Cook. Hacks loved children, but not in a creepy, perverted kind of way. He generally loved the company of children. I imagine he enjoyed their innocent nature before they became corrupted by the madness of the world. Hacks gave the boys food and they found a hiding place to eat. Unfortunately for Hacks, he was unaware where the boys had chosen to hide, and the place the boys had chosen was in earshot of a secret meeting between Hacks and a man named Robes. The good man, the guard was saying. Farson? In two weeks, the guard replied. Maybe three. You have to come with us. There's a shipment from the freight depot. A particularly loud crash of pots and pans and a volley cat calls directed at the hapless pot boy who dropped and blotted out some of the rest. Then the boys heard the guard finish. Poisoned meat. Risky. Ask not what the good man can do for you, the guard began. 
But what you can do for him, Hackside, soldier, ask not. You know what it could mean, the guard said quietly. Yar, and I know my responsibilities to him, too. You don't need to lecture me. I love him just as you do. Would follow him into the sea if asked, so I would. All right. The meat will be marked for short-term storage in your cold rooms. But you'll have to be quick. You must understand that. There are children in Taunton? The cook asked. It was not really a question. Children everywhere, the guard said gently. It's the children we, and he, care about. Poisoned meat. Such a strange way to care for children, Hax uttered a heavy whistling sigh. Will they curdle and hold their bellies and cry for their mamas? I suppose they will. It will be like they going to sleep, the guard said, but his voice was too confidently reasonable. Of course, Hax said and laughed. You said it yourself. Soldier, ask not. Do you enjoy seeing children under the rule of the gun? When they could be under his hands, ready to start making a new world? Axe did not reply. I could have killed them, Roland thought, frozen and fascinated. I could have killed them both with my knife, slit their throats like hogs. He looked at his hands, now stained with gravy and berries as well as dirt from the day's lessons. Roland? He looked at Cuthbert. They looked at each other for a long moment in the fragrant semi-darkness, and a taste of warm despair rose in Roland's throat. What he felt might have been a sort of death, something as brutal and final as the death of a dove in the white sky over the games field. Hax, he thought, bewildered. Hax who put the poultice on my leg that time? Hax? And then his mind snapped closed, cutting the subject off. What he saw, even in Cuthbert's humorous, intelligent face, was nothing, nothing at all. Cuthbert's eyes were flat with Hax's doom. In Cuthbert's eyes, it had already happened. He had fed them, and they had gone under the stairs to eat, and then Hacks brought the guard named Robeson to the wrong corner of the kitchen for their treasonous little tete-a-tete. Kai had worked as Kai sometimes did, as suddenly as a big stone rolling down the hillside. That was all. Cuthbert's eyes were gunslinger's eyes. The country was in the middle of a civil war, and there were spies and terrorists all throughout the kingdom working towards undermining the ruling government. This was a defining moment in Roland's young life, a moment that was cemented even further when he told his father what he'd overheard. His father was a high-ranking official within the government. The head cook, his father said softly. Imagine it. The tracks that were blown upland at the railhead. The dead stock in Hendrickson. And perhaps even... Imagine. Imagine. He looked more closely at his son. It preys on you? Like the hawk, Roland said. It preys on you. He laughed at the startling appropriateness of the image rather than any lightness in the situation. His father smiled. Yes, Roland said. I guess it preys on me. Cuthbert was with you, his father said. He will have told his father by now. Yes. He fed both of you in court... Yes. And Cuthbert, does it prey on him, do you think? I don't know. Nor did he care. He was not concerned with how his feelings compared to those of others. It preys on you because you feel you've caused a man's death? Roland shrugged unwillingly, all at once not content with probing his own motivations. Yet you told 
Why? The boy's eyes widened. How could I not? Treason was... His father waved a hand curtly. If you did it for something as cheap as a school book idea, you did it unworthily. I would rather see all of Taunton poison. I didn't. The words jerked out him violently. I wanted to kill him. I wanted to kill them both. Liars, black liars, snakes. They... Go ahead. They hurt me. He finished defiantly. They changed something, and it hurt. I wanted to kill them for it. I wanted to kill them right there. His father nodded. That's crude, Roland, but not unworthy. Not moral, either. But it's not your place to be moral. In fact, he peered at his son, morals may always be beyond you. You're not quick like Cuthbert or Benet's boy. But that's all right, though. It'll make you formidable. The boy felt both pleased and troubled by this. He'll... Oh, he'll hang. The boy nodded. I want to see it. The elder DeShane threw his head back and roared laughter. Not as formidable as I thought, or perhaps just stupid. He closed his mouth abruptly. An arm shot out and grabbed the boy's upper arm painfully. Roland grimaced but didn't flinch. His father peered at him steadily, and the boy looked back, although it was more difficult than Hood and the Hawk had been. All right, he said. The May, and turned abruptly to go. Father? What? Do you know who they were talking about? Do you know who the good man is? His father turned back and looked at him speculatively. Yes, I think I do. If you caught him, Roland said in his thoughtful, near-plotting way, no one else like Cook would have to have their neck popped? His father smiled thinly. Perhaps not for a while, but in the end, someone always has to have his or her neck popped, as you so quaintly put it. The people demand it. Sooner or later... If there isn't a turncoat, the people make one. Yes, Roland said, grasping the concept instantly. It was one he never forgot. But if you got the good man, no, his father said flatly. Why not? Why wouldn't that end it? For a moment, his father seemed on the verge of saying why, but then he shook his head. We've talked enough for now, I think. Go out from me. When I was reading this scene, I thought of my own father. He was pretty much the same type of man Roland's father was. He would generally only speak with his children when necessary, and when he was done speaking with us, he usually wanted nothing more to do with us until another situation called for it. It was not always that cut and dry, but y'all get the idea. In Roland's world, men are hard on the boys, so they grow up to be strong and productive citizens. The future of society rests on their shoulders, so strength and wisdom are guiding principles that are constantly reinforced within the patriarchy. So we return back to the present. Once Roland reaches the mountains, he knew he was getting closer to the man in black. His intuition had always been one of his greatest strengths. As the story moves forward, Roland and Jake encounter an oracle in the woods. But this particular oracle happens to be a demon. The demon has no shape or form, but embodies the wind itself. Roland knows how dangerous demons are, but decides he needs to talk with it regardless, because oracles can speak prophecy. Three. This is the number of your fate. Three? Yes. Three is mystic. Three stands at the heart of your quest. Another number comes later. Now the number is three. Which three? We see in part, and thus is the mirror prophecy darkened. Tell me what you can. The first is young, dark-haired. He stands on the brink of robbery and murder. A demon has infested him. The name of the demon is heroin. Which demon is that? I know it not, even from my tutor's lessons. 
We see in part, and thus the mere prophecy is darkened. There are other worlds, gunslinger, and other demons. These waters are deep. Watch for the doorways. Watch for the roses in the unfound doorways. The second, she comes on wheels. I see no more. The third, death, but not for you. The man in black, where is he? Near. You will speak with him soon. Of what will we speak? The tower. The boy. Jake, tell me of the boy. The boy is your gate to the man in black. The man in black is your gate to the three. The three are your way to the dark tower. How? How can that be? Why must it be? We see in part, and thus the mirror is... God damn you! No! God damned me! Don't patronize me, thing! What shall I call you, then? Star slut? Whore of the winds? Some live on love that comes to the ancient places, even in these sad and evil times. Some, gunslinger, live on blood, even, I understand, on the blood of young boys. May he not be spared? Yes. How? Cease, gunslinger. Strike your camp and turn back northwest. In the northwest there is still need for men who live by the bullet. I am sworn by my father's guns and by the treachery of Martin. Martin is no more. The man in black has eaten his soul, this you know. I am sworn. Then you are damned. As I said near the beginning of the program, Roland's journey is like a metaphorical walk through hell. It's not a path that most people would choose to take. Because you have to be willing to give up everything you have in life in order to reach your goal. And despite the fact that a demon is telling Roland that his only reward will be damnation, he still will not give up the tower. At some point, you really have to wonder, is this the story about a man's pursuit of a righteous quest? Or is this the story about a man's descent into madness? I guess only time will tell. So after the running with the demon, Roland and Jake finally catch up with the man in black. The man in black is within 20 feet of Roland. He is standing on top of a rock ledge next to a waterfall. The man in black begins to mock Roland by congratulating him on fulfilling some unspoken prophecy. Roland answers this by shooting three rounds directly at the man in black. All three bullets surprisingly miss their mark. Then the man in black laughs at Roland and asks him, Would you kill all your answers so easily? Roland tells him to come down off the ledge so they can settle this once and for all. But the man in black declines and says they will talk on the other side of the mountain. But he also makes it clear that it'll just be the two of them, suggesting that Jake will not live to see this meeting. Then the man in black disappears into a cave opening on the mountainside. In Roland's world, Kyle's like a divine force. It's equivalent to the will of God or the hand of fate. So when the scene plays itself out and Roland is unable to kill the men in black, there's a sense of confusion within Roland's mind. Confusion made worse by the fact that Roland's attempt to kill the man in black was answered with laughter. This seems to be Kyle's way of saying the journey will continue as long as the powers that be make it so. So realizing that is what the rules are, Roland and Jake enter the cave entrance and continue their hunt for the man in black. They eventually discover railroad tracks with a handcar sitting on the tracks. The handcar will be faster than traveling by foot, so they take the handcar and go deeper into the mountain. As they're coasting down the rails, they run into green glowing, mutated humans called the Slow Mutants. These are the people I mentioned earlier who were exposed to some form of radiation poisoning years ago. They have deformed bodies, with some having tentacle arms, webbed hands, or several pairs of eyes covering their heads. They must be able to breed because it seems slow mutants have been around for generations and the radiation hasn't killed them off yet. Unfortunately for us, we never find out what the cause of this mass radiological event was or why some parts of the world got hit while others didn't. That would probably be an interesting story in and of itself, but like I said before, 
We'll never know. So Roland and Jake end up killing lots of the slow mutants. The ones they didn't kill with headshots, they ran over with the hand car. Several days after that encounter, they came upon an abandoned train station. After investigating it, they found several mummified corpses and military uniforms scattered throughout the station. Roland suspects this was a military target, and these people were killed by poisonous gas. He remembers hearing stories about the old ones using the same method centuries ago in some long-forgotten war. They decide to leave the station, and after another three days of travel, they stop at a part of the track that begins to take a very steep rise. The tracks are held up by wood and steel support beams that form a massive archway stretching over a raging river below. The archway looks extremely dangerous because the entire structure is old and decrepit, but the alternative would be to go back the way they came, so Roland and Jake decide to leave the handcar behind and continue up the railroad tracks. As they're walking up the tracks, pieces of it are falling off with every step they take, but then they see light up ahead, coming from a cave opening to the outside world. They've been traveling through this mountain for over a week now, and are getting very excited about finally seeing daylight. When they're about 90 feet away from the cave opening, someone steps in front of the light. It's the man in black. His sudden appearance startles Jake, and he loses his balance, partially falling through the track. Jake was able to grab a part of the track so he wouldn't fall into the river below, but he's dangling in the air. Jake asks Roland to help him, but the man in black is telling Roland if he doesn't come after him now, the man in black will be gone forever, suggesting Roland will never know the answers he seeks in regards to the tower. Roland is torn by the decision, but decides to leave Jake behind so he can go after the man in black. The railroad tracks collapse, and Jake falls to his death. It was at this point that something the demon back at the way station cellar said began to ring true. The demon said, While you travel with the boy, the man in black travels with your soul in his pocket. The meaning behind this is that as long as the boy is with you, he will eventually become your greatest weakness. This is due to Roland forming an emotional bond with Jake, a bond the man in black can exploit and cause Roland to lose what is left of his humanity, which is exactly what the man in black did by forcing Roland to choose between Jake or him. This also brings to mind another flashback scene Roland had about his childhood love Susan. He chose the tower over her as well, and because of that choice, Susan was burned to death, which again is another reflection of the hell that Roland seems to dwell in. All of this is a hell of his own making, one that he chose of his own free will and one that has damned him to chasing the devil himself to the ends of the earth. When Roland emerges outside of the cave entrance and into the sunlight, he sees the man in black standing in a grassy field. Again, the man in black mocks Roland by saying, this is not an end, but the end of the beginning, and follows up by telling Roland how he admires his progression. Once again, Roland answers this with gunfire, 12 shots at point-blank range, and once again, all 12 bullets miss their mark. The man in black responds by saying, you kill me no more than you kill yourself. The meaning behind this statement being, something inside Roland is preventing him from killing the man in black. Something that Roland is unable to overcome. That same something that would stop Roland from killing himself if he ever felt the urge to do so. It's like I said before, Kai wants Roland's journey to continue, so Roland can do nothing about it, but accept Kai's will. And even after this show of force, the Man in Black still invites Roland to come talk with him. Roland concedes to the Man in Black's request, the thinking being, if he cannot kill this man, he can at least try to get some answers from him. The Man in Black led him to an ancient killing ground to make palaver. The gunslinger knew it immediately, a Golgotha, place of the skull. And Bleach Skulls stared blandly up at them. Cattle, coyotes, deer, rabbits, bumbler. Here the alabaster xylophone of a hen pheasant killed as she fed. 
There, the tiny, delicate bones of a mole, perhaps killed for pleasure by a wild dog. The Golgotha was a bowl indented into the descending slope of the mountain. And below, in easier altitudes, Gunslinger could see Joshua trees and scrub firs. The sky overhead was a softer blue than he had seen for a twelve month, and it was indefinable something that spoke of the sea in a not too great distance. I am in the west, Cuthbert, he thought wonderingly. If this is not midworld, it's close by. The man in black sat on an ancient ironwood log. His boots were powdered white with dust and the uneasy bone meal of this place. He had put his hood up again, but the gunslinger could see the square shape of his chin clearly and the shading of his jaw. The shadowed lips twitched in a smile. These are tarot cards, gunslinger, of a sort. A mixture of the standard deck, to which have been added a selection of my own development. Now watch carefully. What will I watch? I'm going to tell you your future. Seven cards must be turned, one at a time, and placed in conjunction with the others. I've not done this since the days when Gilead stood, and the ladies played points on the West Lawn, and I suspect I've never read a tale such as yours. Mockery was creeping into his voice again. You were the world's last adventurer, the last crusader. How that must please you, Roland. Yet you have no idea how close you stand to the tower now, as you resume your quest. Worlds turn about your head. What do you mean, resume? I never left off. At this, the man in black laughed heartily, but would not say what he found so funny. Read my fortune, then, Roland said harshly. The first card was turned. The hanged man the man in black said. The darkness had given him his hood back. Yet here, in conjunction with nothing else, it signifies strength, not death. You, gunslinger, are the hangman, plodding ever onward toward your goal over the pits of Na'ar. You've already dropped one co-traveler into the pit, have you not? The gunslinger said nothing, and the second card was turned. The sailor! Note the clear brow, the hairless cheeks, the wounded eyes. He drowns, gunslinger, and no one throws out the line. The boy Jake. The gunslinger winced, said nothing. The third card was turned. A baboon stood grinningly astride a young man's shoulder. The young man's face was turned up, a grimace of stylized dread and horror on his features. Looking more closely, the gunslinger saw the baboon held a whip. The prisoner, the man in black said. The fire cast uneasy, flickering shadows over the face of the ridden man, making it seem to move and writhe in wordless terror. The gunslinger flicked his eyes away. Trifling upsetting, isn't he? The man in black said, and seemed on the verge of sniggering. He turned the fourth card. A woman with a shawl over her head sat spinning at a wheel. To the gunslinger's dazed eyes, she appeared to be smiling craftily and sobbing at the same time. The Lady of Shadows, the man in black remarked. Does she look two-faced to you, gunslinger? She is. Two faces at least. She broke the blue plate. What do you mean? I don't know. And in this case, at least, the gunslinger thought his adversary was telling the truth. Why are you showing me these? Don't ask, the man in black said sharply. Yet he smiled. Don't ask. Merely watch. Consider this only pointless ritual if it eases you and cools you to do so. Like church. He tittered and turned the fifth card. A grinning reaper clutched the scythe with bony fingers. Death, the man in black said simply. Yet not for you. The sixth card. The gunslinger looked at it and felt a strange, crawling anticipation in his guts. The feeling was mixed with horror and joy, and the whole of the emotion was unnameable. 
It made him feel like throwing up and dancing at the same time. The tower, the man in black said softly. Here is the tower. The gunslinger's cart occupied the center of the pattern. Each of the following four stood at one corner like satellites circling a star. Where does that one go? The gunslinger asked. The man in black placed the tower over the hangman, covering it completely. What does that mean? The gunslinger asked. The man in black did not answer. What does that mean? He asked raggedly. The man in black did not answer. God damn you. No answer. Then be damned to you. What's the seventh card? The man in black turned the seventh. His sun rose in the luminously blue sky. Cupids and sprites sported around it. Below the sun was a great red field upon which it shone. Roses or blood? The gunslinger could not tell. Perhaps, he thought, it's both. The seventh card is life, the man in black said softly. But not for you. Where does it fit into the pattern? That is not for you to know, now, the man in black said. Or for me to know. I am not the great one you seek, Roland. I am merely his emissary. He flipped the card carelessly into the dying fire. It charred, curled, and flashed to flame. The gunslinger felt his heart quail and turn icy in his chest. Sleep now, the man in black said carelessly. Perchance to dream and that sort of thing. What my bullets won't do, mayhap my hands will, the gunslinger said. His legs coiled with savage, splendid suddenness and flew across the fire at the other, arms outstretched. The man in black smiling swelled in his vision and then retreated down a long and echoing corridor. The world filled with the sound of sardonic laughter. He was falling, dying, sleeping. He dreamed. So each card represents a different character or aspect of Roland's journey. Roland wanting more information behind the meaning of the cards is understandable. But Roland thinking the man in black would just hand over this information so easily is not. You have to remember that, to the man in black, this eternal struggle between them is just a game. The stakes of the game will always result in life or death, but nonetheless, it's still just a game. And it doesn't matter that Roland sees the game as a means to right the wrongs of the past or to prevent the sins of the past from happening again in the future. Because the game or journey or grand design does not care about Roland's feelings or his frustration. The game is controlled by the hand of fate or the will of God itself. And no mortal or sorcerer or crimson king can supplant that power. But in spite of all of that, Roland lets his anger get the best of him and falls into another one of the man in black's traps. But this isn't a trap that will kill him. Instead, it's designed to give him some of the answers he seeks. Apparently, the man in black casts some sort of spell which causes Roland to fall into a dreamlike state. In this dream, the man in black shows Roland how the Earth, solar system, and universe were formed. This is terrifying to Roland, and he begs for the vision to stop. Please. No more. No more. No more. The voice of the man in black whispered silkily in his ear. Then renege. Cast away all thought to the tower. Go your way, gunslinger, and begin the long job of saving your soul. He gathered himself, shaken and alone, enwrapped in the darkness, terrified of an ultimate meaning rushing at him. He gathered himself and uttered the final answer on the subject. Never! Then let there be light. And there was light, crashing in on him like a hammer, a great and primordial light. Consciousness had no chance of survival in that great glare. But before it perished, the gunslinger saw something clearly. 
something he believed to be of cosmic importance. He clutched it with agonized effort and then went deep, seeking refuge in himself before the light should blind his eyes and blast his sanity. He fled the light, and the knowledge the light implied, and so came back into himself. When the dream is over, Roland wakes up. It's still the dead of night, and he has no idea how long he was asleep. He wonders what the vision was supposed to mean, or better yet, what that horrifying light was at the end of it. Roland looked around and sees the man in black sitting next to the dying embers of their campfire. He was finishing off the remains of a rabbit he cooked for himself while Roland was sleeping. You did fairly well, the man in black said. I never could have sent that vision to your father. He would have come back drooling. What was it? The gunslinger asked. His words were blurred and shaky. He felt that if he tried to rise, his legs would buckle. The universe, the man in black said carelessly. He burped and threw the bones into the fire where they first glistened and then blackened. The wind above the cup of the gulk of the keened and moaned. Universe, the gunslinger said blankly. It was a word with which he was unfamiliar. His first thought was the other was speaking poetry. You want the tower, the man in black said. It seemed to be a question. Yes. Well, you shan't have it, the man in black said, and smiled with bright cruelty. No one cares when the counsels of the great... If you pawn your soul or sell it outright, Roland, I have an idea how close to the edge that last pushed you. The tower will kill you half a world away. You know nothing of me, the gunslinger said quietly, and the smile faded from the other's lips. I made your father, and I broke him, the man in black said grimly. I came to your mother as Martin. There's a truth you always suspected, is it not? And I took her. She bent beneath me like a willow. Although, this may comfort you, she never broke. In any case, it was written and it was. I am the furthest minion of he who now rules the Dark Tower. And earth has been given into that king's red hand. Red? Why do you say red? Never mind. We'll not speak of him. Although you'll learn more than you care to if you press on. What hurts you once will hurt you twice. This is not the beginning, but the beginning's end. You'd do well to remember that, but you never do. So even though this was supposed to be a conversation about answers regarding the tower, the man in black cannot help himself but express his contempt for Roland and his family. It's a very personal hatred, one for which no reason is ever given. But we do know the man in black needs to destroy the death chain lineage in order to get what he wants. But the problem the Man in Black is facing is the supernatural powers that be of this world see Roland and the Man in Black as two sides of the same coin. Therefore, they want both men to continue to exist. And it doesn't seem to matter how much either man wants the other one dead, because God or Ka or whatever force dictates the laws of creation won't let one kill the other one directly. However, if someone else or something else chooses to kill either of these men along the way, well... Apparently, that's just fine with the head supernatural force in charge. It kind of makes you wonder, though, with all the pain and suffering in this world, is God just fucking with people for some greater purpose in mind, or is God just an asshole? I'll leave that one for y'all to decide. Something else happened in this scene that's very important, but Roland does not pick up on it. The man in black says, What hurt you once will hurt you twice. This is not the beginning, but the beginning's end. You do well to remember that, but you never do. The suggestion is that Roland has taken this journey before, 
This is reinforced by an earlier part of their conversation where the man in black says, you were the world's last adventurer, the last crusader. How that must please you, Roland. Yet you have no idea how close you stand to the tower now as you resume your quest. Worlds turn about your head. Then Roland says, what do you mean resume? I never left off. And the man in black responds by laughing heartily, but would not say what he found so funny. So the key part of this conversation is the man in black saying, as you resume your quest. And Roland responding with, what do you mean resume? I never left off. And then the man in black responds by once again laughing at him. When someone has detrimental information about a person and doesn't reveal it and simply lets the person experience whatever turmoil or trauma may come down the path of life, this is inherently evil. Roland knows the man in black is pure evil, but Roland doesn't know that the man in black has secret knowledge of past events. Events Roland should remember, but once again, the supernatural forces that be prevent him from doing so. There is also another clue that the battle between these two men has lasted longer than one man's normal lifetime. The man in black has also stated that he is nearly immortal, and Roland is as well, for now at least, suggesting that there is something at work that is greater than the both of them extending their years upon this earth and keeping them alive for as long as need be. But Roland does not understand the subtlety in how the man in black speaks. Therefore, the true answers to what Roland is searching for are lost in translation. Roland's father also saw this sort of dim-wittedness about Roland by saying that he was not quick like Cuthbert or Roland's teacher Vinay's boy, suggesting that Roland as a boy and as a grown adult would always be simple-minded, and because of this, he would always rely on his intuition as opposed to thoughtful reasoning in order to make his way through life. This makes Roland extremely formidable due to his impeccably sharp instincts, but his biggest weakness will be not being able to see the deceptive nuances that life will constantly thrust upon him, and because of this, he will always be blind to what stands before him. What did I see? The gunslinger asked. What did I see at the end? What was it? What did it seem to be? The gunslinger was silent, thoughtful. He felt for his tobacco, but there was none. The man in black did not offer to refill his poke by either black magic or white. Later he might find more in his grow bag. The later seemed very far away now. There was a light, the gunslinger said finally. Great white light. And then... He broke off and stared at the man in black. He was leaning forward, and the alien emotion was stamped on his face, writ too large for lies or denial. It was awe or wonder. Perhaps they were the same. You don't know, he said and began to smile. Oh, great sorcerer who brings the dead to life. You don't know. You're a fake. I know, the man in black said, but I don't know what. White light, the gunslinger repeated. And then a blade of grass. One single blade of grass that filled everything. And I was tiny, infinitesimal. Grass. The man in black closed his eyes. His face looked drawn and haggard. A blade of grass? Are you sure? Yes, the gunslinger frowned. But it was purple. Hear me now, Roland, son of Stephen. Would you hear me? Yes. And so the man in black began to speak. The man in black tells Roland his dream was about the size and scope of the universe. That mankind's greatest achievements are actually quite small and inconsequential when it comes to the overall landscape of existence itself. The man in black continues to say that the terrifying purple blade of grass that Roland saw in his vision 
might have been symbolic of how minute our universe really is. That maybe our universe is part of an atom on a blade of grass. Or worse yet, our universe is a grain of sand in the desert amongst an infinite number of other deserts. It would truly mean that we matter very little in the grand scheme of things. As the conversation continues, the man in black goes into more detail about his lord and master, the Crimson King. You seek the light so soon. I was made for the light. Ah, so you were. It's so impolite of me to forget the fact, yet we have much to discuss yet, you and I, for it has been told to me by my king and master. Who is this king? The man in black smiled. Shall we tell the truth then, you and I? No more lies? I thought we had been. But the man in black persisted as if Roland hadn't spoken. Shall there be truth between us, as two men? Not as friends, but as equals? There is an offer you will get rarely, Roland. Only equals speak the truth. That's my thought on it. Friends and lovers lie endlessly, caught in the web of regard. How tiresome. Well, I wouldn't want to tire you. So let us speak the truth. He had never spoken less on this night. Start by telling me exactly what you mean by glamour. Why, enchantment, gunslinger. My king's enchantment has prolonged this night and will prolong it until our palaver is done. How long will that be? Long. I can tell you no better. I do not know myself. The man in black stood over the fire, and the glowing embers made patterns on his face. Ask. I will tell you what I know. You have caught me. It is fair. I did not think you would, yet your quest has only begun. Ask. It will lead us to business soon enough. Who is your king? I have never seen him, but you must. But before you meet him, you must first meet the ageless stranger. The man in black smiled spitelessly. You must slay him, gunslinger. Yet I think that is not what you wish to ask. If you have never seen your king and master, how do you know him? He comes to me in dreams. As a stripling he came to me, when I lived poor and unknown in a far land. A sheaf of centuries ago, he imbued me with my duty and promised me my reward. Although there were many errands in my youth and in my days of manhood before my apotheosis, you are that apotheosis, gunslinger. You are my climax. He tittered. You see, someone has taken you seriously. And this stranger, does he have a name? Oh, he is named. And what is his name? Legion, the man in black said softly, and somewhere in the easterly darkness where the mountains lay, a rock slide punctuated his words, and a puma screamed like a woman. The gunslinger shivered, and the man in black flinched. Yet I do not think that is what you wish to ask either. It is not in your nature to think so far ahead. The gunslinger knew the question. It had gnawed at him all this night, and he thought, for years before, it trembled on his lips, but he didn't ask it. Not yet. This stranger, is he a minion of the tower, like yourself? Yar. He darkles. He tinks. He is in all times. Yet there is one greater than he. Who? Ask me no more, the man in black cried. His voice aspired to sternness and crumbled into beseechment. I know not. I do not wish to know. To speak of things in inworld is to speak of the ruination of one's own soul. And beyond the ageless stranger is the tower, and whatever the tower contains. Yes, whispered the man in black, but none of these things are what you wish to ask. True. All right, the gunslinger said, and then asked the world's oldest question. Will I succeed? Will I win through? 
If I answered that question, gunslinger, you'd kill me. I ought to kill you. You need killing. His hands had dropped to the warm butts of his guns. Those do not open doors, gunslinger. Those only close them forever. Where must I go? Start west. Go to the sea. Where the world ends is where you must begin. Compelled by something outside of him, Roland said, You have one more thing to say, don't you? Yes, the man in black said, and he smiled at the gunslinger with his depthless eyes and stretched one of his hands out towards him. Let there be light. And there was light, and this time the light was good. This conversation was actually a dream within a dream. The let there be light phrase was a sort of enchantment to end the second dream, a dream for which Roland did not know he was in. When Roland wakes up this time, he has physically aged 10 years, and the man in black is dead. All that remains of him is a skeleton inside of his black robe. But the purpose of the dream within a dream was to discourage Roland from pursuing the tower and show how meaningless his quest really is. But Roland doesn't care. He thinks the whole thing was just a sorcerer's trick, and most of what the man in black had to say was just lies. Roland heads west until he reaches the beach, then sits down and dreams about reaching the tower and fighting some unimaginable battle before it. So my thoughts on this novel are it's one of the best stories I've ever read. I'm a little biased because I truly love westerns, and to be even more exact, I love Sergio Leone westerns in particular. So to read a story inspired by Leone westerns, with a supernatural element blended within it, is absolutely mind-blowing to me. I also love the mixing of American western tropes with European medieval ones. I've read other reviews of this book, and they range from people saying it's incoherent garbage to people believing it's an absolute masterpiece. I would have to say I fall into the latter. This is my second time reading this book, and it was even better this time around, so I'm giving this book a 5 out of 5. As we continue the journey, I'll be reviewing the second book in the Dark Tower series, The Drawing of the Three. So until next time, goddammit.